Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Mr. Peter Tang, Director of Research for SCORE, the State Collaborative on Reforming Education, which is an organization focused on public education in Tennessee. Before joining SCORE in 2015, Peter taught middle school math and high school English in Memphis and served as a master teacher in Shelby County Schools. He serves on the board of edreports.org, an independent nonprofit that helps educators and leaders seek, identify, and demand the highest quality instructional materials. He earned his bachelor's degree from Amherst College and a master's degree in public policy from Vanderbilt University. Peter leads SCORE's strategic research efforts, identifying and studying new and emerging trends that could advance student success in Tennessee and collaborating across the research and innovation team to apply the findings across the K-12 two-career continuum. Previously, Peter led the Tennessee Educator Fellowship, where he oversaw the growth of the fellowship to equip more educators across Tennessee to advocate for student-centered policies and practices. Welcome, Peter Tang. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Shelley. First of all, can you tell us about SCORE and what you do there? Absolutely. So SCORE is a nonprofit policy and advocacy organization founded in 2009 by former U.S. Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. As a policy and advocacy organization, we really focus from, like you said in the intro, the kindergarten through career continuum. A lot of our work is around coalition building, the sort of typical policy advocacy work, communications, growing sort of strategic practice work. And so this is a lot of the application of some of the things I think we'll, we'll be talking about today. Uh, and, and then just research. And, and when I say research, I'm going to be clear here. It's not for the academic purpose of research. It's for the application, in, uh, in, in whether it's to advance policy, advance practice that it, you know, improves student outcomes. The other thing I would just say, too, is what do I do there thing is a lot of reviewing and uh, reviewing research, analyzing data and trends. I often think back to like when I was a teacher, people used to say all the time, let's do research backed things or research based things. And honestly, that was one of the toughest things to hear sometimes. What in the world do people mean by that? And so I feel like I have the privilege of actually getting to understand that now and helping sort of turn that into something that's useful for folks who are actually doing the work. I love it. So you do this research on a wide variety of topics, but recently I was very interested in what you wrote about how school systems can use research when deciding how to spend ESSER II funding. One of the interesting things you point out is that the normal funding mechanisms that were supporting schools may be affected for several years. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I don't have to tell anyone that there's a pandemic going on and it's disrupted schools, but it's also disrupted many aspects of society. I think of it as sort of two different types of disruptions. One is what I could probably clearly say is a bad one, which is that there's going to be some disruption through 
government revenue, right? Whether it's local community revenues or state revenues, that where it's happening, some states are doing a little better than others and some doing way worse than others. And so like monitoring those fluctuations is really important. A lot of it is in the less than what they expected territory at the same time that there are more demands on what government is doing to respond to them, right? So you're sort of having this double whammy of like a lot of asks for the government to sort of respond to the pandemic while like the revenue picture doesn't look very good, which then impacts school funding and sort of what resources are available. And it'll be a while before we really know for sure what's going to happen. And so, and then the other kind of disruption is what I would say would put in the category of could be good disruption, which is as we're recording this today, the president just signed a stimulus bill, which is probably the largest, I think, in the country's history. It's, you know, happening at a time when schools in many communities are reopening and in all communities doing some form of recovery where we've been a year into this at this point, And then there's a lot of work. And so just to put some numbers behind it. For Alabama, just thinking about the packages that had, that had already happened, not the one today. We're talking about $1.1 billion so far, and that's a lot of money. In Tennessee, for us, it was $1.4 billion of what existed. And I think we had, had seen some uh, possible projections that were getting $2.6 billion, which added up together, that is $4 billion to be spent over the next couple of years. That's a lot of money. That's a form of disruption. It's just, again, to put an even finer point on it, this is... I saw a piece in Choppy yesterday that compared the typical federal Title I funding that the federal government provides to really support students from low-income backgrounds. In 2018, it was $55 billion, or about $979 per pupil. In the most recent coronavirus relief package, it's $128 billion, or approximately $2,200 per pupil. So I want to be clear about why it could be good, right? It really just comes down to like, are we going to use this well? Uh, more and more recent research on the sort of relationship between school finance and outcomes and school resources broadly and outcomes. You know, I think what you see is like there's, there is a positive relationship, but I think where you don't see a consensus on is how did people spend it to get those improvements, right? And so that's, that's still like a big sort of thing that people have to figure out. And so it, we've got the bad, which is the state revenue drops and then the good. It could be good, which is the stimulus. That is a lot of money and a lot of decisions to be made. From listening to you, obviously, we're going to have to use this money very wisely because we really don't know what is still coming. We don't know what the impact to local and state economies are. What can you tell us about what the research is showing in terms of what students were most affected by the pandemic interrupting their learning and what characteristics made them most at risk? You know, what I find interesting about that question actually is, you know, I think oftentimes really do want to look to research. We do want to look to data. But what's what's interesting about this moment is the pandemic had a lot of folks asking a lot of new questions that they didn't used to ask or didn't pay attention to. There were definitely people paying attention to the inequities in, in our education system. And I think they've been here People have known about it, but more people now know about it or are experiencing it in a very sort of real way. And one way that that's working out is I get the question a lot about, oh, what's going on all across the state? Like who, who's online and who's who's in hybrid or who's going to school or that sort of thing. And, and then people try to ask around the country. Turns out like right now, actually local school districts probably know more than anyone else because they're the folks who are taking attendance every single day. They're the folks who know whether a student is here or not. I think one thing that 
is a benefit of sort of statewide looks at data as you start noticing patterns, you think about groups of kids that we are worried about or think may need additional support, sort of putting that aside, right? Right now that locals probably have a lot of the best information. If you look at sort of what has been done so far in surveys, estimates, projections, you know, that you, you can't have this conversation and not acknowledge that the pandemic's effect on students of color, on students who come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, where the family members may be more likely to uh, work in uh, essential services, right, where they've been exposed, the possibility of multi-generational households, which sort of compound into this situation where there's a degree of trauma here. And I think that impacts whether or not a student goes to school, whether or not they're, even when they're in school, are they learning, and all those sorts of things. I saw a recent survey from the Center on Reinventing Public Education, where they surveyed students and found that, you know, Hispanic, multiracial, and Black students were more likely to report obstacles to learn than their white and Asian peers. You can take that sort of large line and think about where does this apply here and look at the data of a local school district to really have the story. Another one, the digital divide. Um, I think even before I, I'd seen numerous uh, groups and one in particular that hit me early in the pandemic was uh, just data from the Pew Charitable Trusts. Uh, that really looked at some of the device and reliable internet issues facing students of color and from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, recently in Tennessee, we just saw a report from the state that said that there's an estimated 194,000 homes or approximately 432,000 Tennesseans um, that don't have access to high-speed internet, like literally could not buy it if they wanted it. And so that, and that's just one part of the problem in the digital life. There's the, can you buy it? Can you afford to buy it? And then do you have the devices to use it? And then there's a quality issue of all of that too. There's all these little nuances that happen where family may be sharing a computer. What does that mean? Is that enough for a Zoom class of some sort, right? And then so that, that gets complicated pretty quickly. One good point on that, Chattanooga is doing this great thing on, you know, for the next 10 years, they are providing free internet paid for access from the school district to all economically disadvantaged students. And you know, really you're starting to see these advances where there's particular problems. And we're not just doing like what was early in the pandemic, which I would describe as like a hotspot scramble, if you will, and, and like actually more enduring solutions from, from, from some communities. And then finally, um, you know, one of the better sort of bigger picture looks that I've seen about engagement comes from um, the Opportunity Insights Project. They do an economic recovery tracker. Uh, put together by a group of researchers at Harvard. And the way that they looked at education was they looked at some of the engagement of students on an online math platform and sort of said, based on some data that they had, was like, okay, schools in sort of lower income, middle income, higher income communities, what happened? And it's the same pattern you see, higher income students that are engaged probably just as well as they were before. And then lower income students, I think like a 16% gap, if you will, of engagement. And so the other thing I'd say, we're all in the K-12 space interested in what's happening in K-12, but there are long run effects here too. In Tennessee, fall 2020, we saw a 19% drop in the community college enrollment of first-time full-time freshmen, of which I think we went above 30% uh, for African-American males. People going to college and whether they enroll, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things going on there that we need to pay attention to. And then if you really want to talk about long run, Eric Hanushek, who's a scholar at Stanford and the Hoover Institution on education finance and educator policy. He 
estimates a loss of $14 trillion to the economy, just simply on, you know, people having trouble getting to attending school in the way that they might have normally done, or on an individual level, meaning something like a 3% lower earnings over their lifetime. I don't need to say this too much more. I don't think more data is going to tell us this, but it's just bad. Uh, It is a difficult situation for students, for educators to, to really contend with the situation that we're just I had not read any of that about the potential loss over their lifetime. And so if you really think about the implications for every one of those students, that is staggering. It really adds up, yeah. I know that you outlined some things in your memo about how to spend this money, and it brings to mind uh, the John Hattie idea about most everything works to some extent, but some things work better than others. Specifically, you outlined a few strategies that I think people could really benefit from, the first being high-dosage tutoring. Can you tell us what that looks like and what makes it effective or not effective? So let me start by telling you what it probably isn't. It's funny, we, we started having these conversations with just different districts and different partners that we work with. And you start noticing how when people talked about tutoring, they really thought about after school tutoring, the kind of stuff that people, if you've been in education long enough, you've seen like during the No Child Left Behind period, people would do, oh, come by, get some homework help and sort of just whenever you want, maybe once a week. And it's sort of come and go, different tutor every single time. One of the projects that's really been really helpful for the, the research policy practice connection is this uh, a project called the Ed Research for Recovery Project. What they did and I'll get back to why, how this applies to the tutoring in a second. It's a collaboration between a whole bunch of researchers across the country asking the question, like, what does research say about X that's related to, like, when we recover and how do we recover from an education standpoint? One of the most recent things they did was they put out a design brief, sort of design principles on high dosage tutoring. And they looked at probably more than 200 studies, a couple of hundred studies at least, to say all these different types of tutoring that people have studied, what do we know? What seems to work? What seems to not? And what I also find remarkable, and you know, for those of you who read research or you know want to try to better understand it, I've not seen people be this clear about the effectiveness of it, the level of detail that they went to to, to explain across all these trends. Here's what it looks like for frequency. Here's what it looks like for group size. And let me get you into some of those details, right? From looking at all of these different models that have been tried in the past, tutoring is most likely to be effective when delivered at least three times per week for at least 30 minutes per session and with a consistent tutor. Some of that has to do with the engagement and relationship pieces. I think there are models in Chicago that were just in the news recently and in Boston that were very, very well rigorously studied that this is a real effect on group size. One to one, one to two is ideal. In some cases, we've seen up to one to four might work. And think about this from a district leader's perspective. These are numbers you can start designing around. That's a level of specificity. It's rare to see this on scheduling, uh, really thinking about if it's part of the school day, a thing you happen to go to, but it's it's a part of school. And really gets to that equitable access for students because then you don't have to deal with like the, the bus transportation issues and all those other operational issues that I, I don't need to explain to school leaders. And uh, on training, tutoring is a distinct skill set that's different than teaching, which then opens up the types of people you might be able to, to get to do this. Now you hear a lot of conversations about college students or educator prep program students where they're training to be teachers. At the end of the day, 
robust training. And I think there's some discussion about what that robust training is supposed to be. And that's the kind of stuff we all got to work out as a field. And then really some intentional progress monitoring. I think this is particularly true in the pandemic setting. I mean, everyone's been like working so hard for so long that it's difficult in the best of times to do a new thing well, much less you're exhausted after a year uh, putting out fires left, right, and center and trying to get it right the first time. Like taking a sort of continuous improvement sort of approach is going to probably be important, not just for like the program implementation, but what do the kids need to learn? I mean, it's not going to be the same from the beginning when you when you started it. You might have to change and adjust and make those sort of you know good implementation moves. And so and just to put an example on it, some emerging examples uh, on our blog, we featured uh, Lenore City Schools, which is a small district in Tennessee, where they sort of focused on doing it during the 30-minute homeroom. I think they leaned on experienced math teachers, which choice that they made. And because of that, they pushed into that one, one to four, one to five territory that you might not want to do if it's just like a, like a college student or something like that, right? Because the skills are different. Um, and right now, I think they're working on tutor pay scales because this was just a pilot. They're just starting to try it out. And they're working out like, oh, okay, if we're, we're, we're going to need more people to do this, what, what might the pay need to look like and all those sort of other types of issues. The second strategy you talk about are vacation acceleration academies. And I know that some of this was based on work done in Massachusetts. What can you tell us about this strategy and how do you think schools might be able to implement this? Yeah. So let me also start by saying what it isn't quite necessarily. Uh, I think there's uh, summer school is always an interesting topic. I think there was a recent paper studying some summer school pilots that happened in the last year. And I think, you know, People who are interested should definitely take a look at it. What we mean by vacation acceleration academies is this concept that I actually first came across when I was reading some like school improvement research. Obviously, making sure that our schools who are you know identified as the lowest uh, performing schools in the state, like there's a lot of interest in like making sure that the kids who go to them have the opportunities they deserve. And so when you find that. And in that school turnaround, school improvement research, it's actually kind of depressing most of the time. It's like you don't find that much good stuff happening. It's, you know, there's some really valiant efforts there, uh, but it, it's a difficult body of work, what I would say. And so when we found like, oh, Massachusetts did something and it, 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 something in Massachusetts happened and it was really good. We looked at the paper and we're like, oh, and it turns, it was like a little note. It was like a couple, maybe a couple of paragraphs where they just said, yeah, a lot of this, uh, the positive effects and gains in student learning came from these like vacation academies that kids who attended these vacation academies. So what they are, are one week, uh, generally one week or so over like a spring break, fall break kind of situation where they would work with like, it's kind of like a one to 10 ratio thereabouts, give or take with, with a teacher. And usually they select in their original versions, they were the high, most highly effective teachers. When they sold it to the students, it was this really wonderful selective opportunity. They, there was no stigma. They really minded the stigma aspects of this, which I would also say something to think about on the tutoring side too. And then the, the teachers were also like celebrated and, and really like given additional training and all these other things. I think they focused on sort of one topic at a time for that week. And like I said, they really focused on making this a desired opportunity for both the teacher and the student. And let me put it next to the tutoring thing for a second, right? Because think of it as a little bit of a dial, right? Like 
the when it's like smaller groups of kids, you can probably do with less com- complexity of the adult or the person who's working with the student. You go up to like that's one to one, one to two tutoring. One to ten, you're talking about moving the learning of multiple people at the same time. That's a different type of work, right? I mean, just ask any teacher what it's like to teach multiple people in a setting where you're trying to intervene and really accelerate the learning of students who need additional support. And so you head into that sort of more complex territory and you're going to need either more training or truly the special skills that teachers bring of classroom management and all those other types of things that teachers get training for. Those are some interesting (laughs) things to consider when planning. I think one of the things that caught my eye in your report was your advice about avoiding a physical cliff. Can you explain this concept and how it may impact decision-making, especially in terms of personnel? Yeah, I think this goes back to that sort of invest wisely bit. And I have to give credit where credit is due. I'm sure there's been different folks who've studied this issue, but the person in the group that really brings us, that made me pay attention to it, was uh, the work of uh, Dr. Marguerite Rosa at the Edunomics Lab uh, at Georgetown University. Um, They've been doing a series of webinars uh, since the pandemic to take a look at different different trends across the country they're noticing, how people are handling stimulus dollars, what the budget implications are. And, And the basic concept of a fiscal cliff, right, is, so we've got this period, right, where maybe state and local State and local, maybe state and local resources are a little bit lower, but we've got some additional federal resources that are sort of making up for it. And I would even say probably doing more than what we would normally have gotten because we're asking schools to do more. And then that money goes away. It's one time money, right? So the idea is these one time types of funds, they really point out that like you want to fill immediate needs and avoid sort of investments that would really impact the long term cost structure of a school district. And so, like, the types of things you might not want to do is hire a whole bunch of people that will stay on salary forever. You might take a, a stipend approach for additional work, or you might take some temporary staff type. If you look at it, it's an opportunity to build capacity of people, right? Like so that, you know, these are investments that you really want to make sure outlast the, the pandemic. One sort of way to think about this is, you know, in the research, it's pretty clear that staff layoffs have consequences, negative consequences for students, right? So you really want to avoid a situation where you're going to like hire a bunch of people and let them go. That's just not good. There's there's all sorts of reasons. And you can imagine if you've worked in a school district or a school, why that's that can be very difficult. And so you don't want that to happen. And, and, and really, if for those of you who might like a bit of a cartoon metaphor, I was talking to a colleague about this yesterday. And she said, you know, this reminds me of like the Wiley E. Coyote cartoons, where it's like they're running off a cliff and they never realize they're on the cliff until they're well off the cliff. And then you're like in this situation where you're just like, it's like scrambling. He's, so it's just not very good for school districts to be in that sort of off the cliff and not realize you're off the cliff until it's really a little too late. Right. Well, and the thing that occurred to me, and it kind of goes back to my earlier question, I think that people are now being given this money in such large amounts that maybe they've never been given before. And so it's kind of the, we're rich. And when I started reading what you had written, I thought, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought through the implications of state and local dollars may be affected for a long time to come. And so I, I do think that that physical cliff is something that we need to be thinking about now. 
And as a Game of Thrones fan, the the phrase was, winter is coming, winter is coming. And I don't want people not to uh, have their fur coats ready. Right. No, I think that's right. And I think that's why like the whole invest wisely is the thing here. Like, I mean, just to put an even finer point on it, there's this really one-time opportunity to invest in something that will last. And I'm not in in a school right now. And there are definitely decisions around like, maybe you have to buy PPE. Maybe you need to redo the uh, HVAC systems. And these are important things. But really thinking about also the sort of one-time opportunity to deal with the academic impacts of the virus. And so think of it as like an unexpected windfall. You could find something bright and shiny to buy for a couple of months, or you could invest it in something that'll really see some return. And I think, you know, for something like tutoring, if people do it right, and we have a webinar actually from our organization coming uh, on March 31st on this topic. And if people do it right and make it an enduring strategy, really think about the sustainability, you know, design it with research at the start, make the modifications that they need at the local level, and really communicate, take a continuous improvement approach to it, monitor it, make sure the implementation goes well. This is a cool way to really start thinking about some practices that we may emerge from the pandemic with. Tutoring has been around for, I've read that it's been around since the 15th century, but probably even way before that and been tried, but like, let's get it right. Let's get it right. It, It is an expensive endeavor. We have some resources here. And so this is, this might be the time to try out some new stuff that will pay off in the long run. I agree. Obviously, as a researcher, you use data, but you encourage systems to use data-driven decision-making when planning. And I think some of the time people think data means test scores, but I think that you mean something beyond this. What are some other sources of data that systems might use when making these plans? I think at its simplest, at least this would apply in quote-unquote regular school operations, but definitely applies in the COVID sort of situation. It comes down to three concepts. Uh, one is around attendance, who went to school to, towards what kind of learning, um, engagement, was the student engaged in the learning, and then finally, learning, what did students learn? To your point, I mean, I think assessment information is an important part of this, but there's a lot of other things that really people should be looking into, whether it's like, you know, absenteeism data, digital divide uh, stuff that I think we've already talked about, really measures of opportunity. What kind of courses, you know, if you think about high school, like what kind of courses were available? I think also like an important thing to think about this time is like teacher impressions, student impressions. I think some states have student surveys that they do for for students. I think those are all really, really important pieces of information to figure out. Like, let me give you a hypothetical example. Maybe you notice in a given high school or maybe across all the high schools in the district, 40% of the ninth graders, for whatever reason, missed a whole bunch of Algebra 1 classes. That's a pretty big problem. And locals, like, remember the point about local control. You know that. You Well, at least you have the information to know that. You don't need to wait for somebody else to tell you that. You can go find out, and as a local district, you collect this. So now we know how important Algebra 1 is to the rest of high school and other learning opportunities after high school. What do you want to do about it? That's the kind of data-driven decision-making that I think is going to be really important going forward. Well, and also you talk about teacher and student impressions, getting the input of the people doing the work and the people who you're working with. And so the power of student voice in telling you what's needed. Yeah. And there's plenty of news stories that that are, are showing you the potential of what you can find when you ask all the kids those questions. Very interesting. 
Knowing that there may be other funding coming, what are some high-yield strategies that systems could adopt that would serve them in the future in terms of budgeting with this type of funds? One thing I would just say is like, it's really a do the math kind of situation. I know there's some financial officers and districts that and they're, they're definitely doing the math because they have to do the math, but other people could, could probably stand to do some of it too. And I think one concept I just want to share is a lot of times people see a million dollars and like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. And it is, it's not nothing, right? I mean, it's, that's a lot of money, but a million dollars is also $1,000 per kid for a thousand students. And I think when you break it down like that, you start seeing there are some other options that aren't just the million dollar big ticket infrastructure thing. And th- those are important in, 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 in only communities will sort of know whether or not that particular infrastructure decision was important. But when you think about it, like as a thousand dollars for a thousand, each for a thousand kids, like, oh, okay. So is that, should I buy some high quality instructional materials? Is that a laptop? Is that a tutoring combination? And even if you can't do it for every single student, I think we all know like the impact of the pandemic's been felt differently. That's an opportunity to target. Maybe certain students need more than others. And so that's the kind of like when you break it down into that sort of per pupil way, that's a really powerful way to think about it. Another thing that I I saw that was just really amazing uh, before the pandemic happened. So I live in Nashville. The, The superintendent here did a series of community conversations in the sort of January, February timeframe ahead of the typical budget season that happens in the in the spring. And what she did is something that extends uh, the, what, what districts typically do. Districts typically have a strategic plan. They'll write out sort of like, these are the goals. These are some of the strategies we're going to try. And I think most districts have some version of it. And most districts will also then hopefully line up the, the strategic plan to a budget because where you put your money is where, where your priorities are. What she did was she did this exercise where she named all the different things kind of created like a universe of all the different things that the district was interested in pursuing and then put a price tag on every single one of them. And then she brought it to the community and said, give me some feedback. What what do you think about this? You know, here's where we are as a district. Here's what it looks like. Let me put together something that's aspirational and let's have a conversation about it. But that assumes that you had a strategic plan to begin with. It assumes that you did the math to figure out what these things cost. And then you can have a reasonable conversation about in a world where there's always going to be more needs than there are resources, can we have a thoughtful conversation about priorities? And I think those conversations, I don't see them happening that often. And so it struck me really hard. And it really sustains public support when you have those types of conversations. And we're not just going around saying, oh, what did you do with this money? And someone will one day ask, what did you do with this federal stimulus money? But it'd be great if you had had some conversations about it. And people at least knew, okay, this is where we're heading, and there was an opportunity to talk about it. So then the the needs and the uh, and, and what we're spending is 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 not just someone somewhere made a decision. Agreed. I know that you're on the board of Ed Reports, which is an independent nonprofit focused on the use of high quality instructional materials. I think that some systems will use these recovery funds for the purchase of materials. Can you tell us a little about why high quality instructional materials are so important? And what other elements do systems need to be planning for to successfully implement HQIM? Yeah, so I think what's what's interesting about high-quality instruction materials is, one, just to make sure I, I, I always take the opportunity to say this, I think the high-quality instruction materials that are available today are not the same things that we had from 10 years ago. I think a lot of people think of it as boring old textbooks that are kind of like 
bits and pieces of things that don't really add up. And just, I think back to my teaching days and sort of what I would conceive of as a textbook and versus like the kinds of materials that are available now is quite like they're engaging, they're thoughtfully developed. I think what Edreports has done is really have teachers and educators comb through every single page to make sure that when, when Ed Report says it's like, you know, it's it's a high quality material, there's evidence behind it. And you can read the pages and pages of evidence that they collect on it. So it gives people some confidence that someone actually looked at every single page. And it's not just the decision where, you know, when Ed Reports has the, the rating of high quality, it's really considered someone has looked at every page and, and there's reams of evidence to, to back up the claim. And so there's some confidence that gets built behind it. And so one way to think about it is a lot of systems are going to buy or have instructional materials. I'm not familiar with the process in Alabama for adoption, but hopefully there's some good choices that are available. The choices are good. People will buy them because I think the other thing we come sometimes see is like there's a they adopted, but they didn't buy. So that's one issue. In the buying part of it, it's buying a bad one is probably the same cost as buying a good one. So why not buy a good one, right? And and I think you know recently Ed Reports put out their most recent state of the market report. And what's interesting is the organization has been around for like five six years. They found that fewer than forty percent of teachers report using aligned materials once a week, and that's despite the increase in the in the options of what's considered high quality. And so that that to me is like. Well, if there's one thing and you haven't made this purchase yet, you might want to go through a really good process where you're engaging educators, again, doing your own homework on it. You want to look at the evidence that the ed reports of educator reviewers have collected and say, does this make sense for us? You, don't, you want to make sure that students really get access to the quality materials and you don't want that reality where, like I also saw a data point that like 25% of the teachers across the country reported um, in ELA classrooms. Um, using aligned materials once a week. I mean, again, I don't know what that particular number in Alabama is, but like someone should take a look at that. And, you know, and you got to make sure there's aligned options for, for every grade uh, grade level. And the final bit on it in terms of, you know, what, what folks should do with high quality instruction materials, I lean heavily on sort of the work that some of our members of our team have done in deep partnership with districts across uh, a couple of districts across our state uh, called the Lift Network, where we worked with a group of districts on the implementation of high quality instruction materials. And so the types of things that we are asking teachers to do requires additional support. I think on the issue of literacy, uh, a lot of the, we started working with districts back in like 2015. We noticed that there, people were having dissonance of like, oh, I, I was taught to teach reading this one way and this thing is telling me to do something else. And I'm like, what, what's this about, right? And that, that's how a lot of the early literacy work that you see us sort of advocating for now, that's how we learned about it, right? Because there was this opportunity to see this is what we expect kids to learn. And hmm, I wasn't quite taught that way. And so when you tend to the implementation, the, the concept I'll leave you with is the vertical spine. It's not just the teachers who have to teach the thing, right? It's also like our people in assistant principals, coaches, principals, I mean, even district leaders, do they understand what the curriculum is asking of our students and of our teachers? And then if there's some disconnects, address those disconnects. It, it's coaching. It's all the usual things that one would expect, but it's that everyone sort of understands, oh, this is what we're asking our kids to do. And these are the things we need to do to support them to do it well. We often implement poorly and and then we buy something else and implement it poorly and it's just a vicious cycle. So I love that you talk about the implementation piece. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst thing about doing research 
based strategies or practices is what if you just sort of, I was just having a conversation with a research director in a school district, and they said, sometimes you find school districts, they take one research back practice, they think it's going to work, implementation just started, then they throw it away. And it's like, no, it's start with the research base. Now, no one's saying don't do that. You should do that. That's a considered, logical, thoughtful process to say, these are the facts. This seems to have worked. How can we make it work here over time? And that's the part that, to your point, people miss. And it's a tragedy that we don't want to see happen again. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for being here with us today. You've given us a lot of great advice, things to think about. And I would encourage everyone to check out the work of SCORE, especially that of Peter Tang. Thank you for having me, Shelley. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.